Welcome, and thank you for joining the Society for Clinical Research Sites for SCRS Talks. I'm Jimmy Bechtel, the Vice President of Site Engagement with the Society. SCRS Talks is a program that allows our partners and those that we work closely with to take a few minutes to address issues of industry concern, share exciting achievements, and learn more about our community. Today, we have Dr. Michael Corrin, the CEO and Practicing Cardiologist at Encore Research Group. Dr. Corrin will be sharing some insights into cardiovascular health and cardiovascular research as we enter Heart Health Month. Dr. Corrin, thank you for being here with us today. It's a pleasure to have you on the line with us, a longstanding SCRS supporter and uh, a longstanding member of the Clinical Research Group. If you wouldn't mind, we'd love to hear a little bit more about you. Well, thank you for having me. It's, it's a pleasure and a privilege. So I am a cardiologist, as you mentioned. I am very passionate about clinical research. Uh, since my cardiology training uh, many, many years ago, I hate to even say how many years ago, um, I've always had this uh, <laughs> desire to be involved in clinical trials and specifically to be part of clinical research where we take the things that we discover in you know, at the bedside and, at, and, and with the pharmaceutical development and turn them into practical therapies for our patients. So that's certainly been something that drives me on a day-to-day -day basis. As you mentioned, I am the CEO of Jacksonville Center for Clinical Research. We started the organization in 1997. We've been growing strong since then. We have uh, eight sites right now in the state of Florida, and uh, we, we cover everything from phase one to phase four of clinical research in virtually all therapeutic areas. So we have a very robust group. And one of the unique parts of our organization is the fact that we have probably 70 to 100 doctors who participate who are from all different types of specialties. So we, we cover a lot of ground in different specialties, but most importantly, we cover ground when we are simultaneously looking at two different uh, areas of medical research. So more and more medical research is sort of crossing areas. So I, I, I find it you know quite interesting that, uh, well, for example, we're doing NASH studies that are looking at thyroid memetics. So GI doctors are working with endocrinologists um, things that we're using, for example, uh, to treat uh, diabetes have now become a standard of care for cardiologists. And more and more work is sort of crossing specialties. And I think um, we've been very, very fortunate to have a group that has representation from many, many different specialties, surgical, non-surgical, uh, patient-involved specialties, and 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 specialties that don't involve direct patient care. And that has resulted in really this robust collaboration and some of the great results that we've been able to provide to the sponsors. So that, that's exciting. And um, of course, as a cardiologist, I'm quite passionate about heart health. And we're in a very interesting time, Jimmy, with regard to heart health, which is that there's been tremendous scientific advancements with regard to new therapeutics but we're not quite seeing the results that we would like to see. So in fact, uh, the average life expectancy of Americans has dropped over the course of the last five years. And this trend actually started before the COVID pandemic hit us. So we have some you know, interesting and head scratching questions as to why people don't live as long as they lived 10 years ago in the United States, even though our therapeutics are getting better and better. So I'm sure we'll get into some discussion on that. We sure will, Dr. Corn. Thank you for the introduction and uh, exciting to ask you a few questions. Um, speaking to heart health, uh, February is American Heart 
month, which is a perfect time uh, to discuss issues around cardiovascular health. And in our industry, we rightfully so regularly focus on our patients, but it's also equally important to have to ensure that we take care of ourselves. So Dr. Korn, being a cardiologist and a cardi- cardiovascular researcher, as long as you have, what kinds of insights can you give around how our industry professionals can make sure that they're taking care of their heart health in a profession as demanding as the one we're in right now, especially given some of the uh, global circumstances surrounding our industry? Yeah, there's, there's an old saying, a doctor, heal thyself. <laughs> so it, that's and right. There, there's some wisdom there. So just a little bit more background. I am a past president of the local chapter of the American Heart Association. So I've also been involved on some institutional level discussions about heart health. And, uh, you know, I guess February has become the Heart Health Month because of Valentine's Day in that association. And of course, heart disease hits us on every month, but we get a little bit more of a spotlight uh, during the month of February. And and hopefully we use that spotlight to to help explain to people how important it is to make certain investments in your health. So for example, dietary investments are really extremely important. And and these are things that become habit forming. So for example, one of the pieces of advice I give my patients and anybody else who's willing to listen to me is that we should all be eating more fish as our primary protein. And I kind of practice what I preach. I'll have a sardines or smoked salmon in the morning. I'll find a reason to have tuna fish in the afternoons and, and a nice uh, piece of halibut in, in the evenings. And I would say that on most days I'm consuming some sort of fish. Uh, this morning for breakfast, I had a nice smoked piece of trout. So that's just a little tidbit, a uh, practical tidbit, but eating more fish is generally accepted as a very uh, powerful way actually to reduce your overall heart disease risk. Physical activity is a very important way to reduce your heart disease risk. And again, that's another thing that's habit-forming. You need to get it into your schedule. It needs to be something that becomes part of your day-to-day routine. Uh, Most people have good intentions. Uh, They make a New Year's resolution that they're going to exercise more, but it it often fails during the course of the year because of how busy we are. But most importantly, that we fail to put it into our schedules. So again, using myself as an example, I have a pretty robust routine at this point of of going to the gym on weekend days and and two set days during the week, and I make that happen, and it's it's part of my schedule. So uh, these are another little bit of tidbits about how dietary and exercise habits can make a big difference in heart health. And then, you know, the other thing that you alluded to that I think is really, really important is that the COVID pandemic introduced many, many stressors on the on the healthcare community. And uh, I was actually reviewing some interesting data and those stressors are across the board. It's uh, physicians, it's nurses, it's other ancillary staff members, and it's even the porters and the people who move patients around. In fact, they may have the most stress because um, you know, I'm fortunate as a cardiologist, and, and this is true for other medical specialists, is that we have some control of our interaction with uh, patients, particularly when they have infectious diseases. But uh, a transport person doesn't have that control. They get called up, they get they have to move in and and mask up and gown up and and be very, very concerned about their own personal safety. And over the course of years, that has a huge psychological burden on people. And there's some speculation that these type of burdens may be a major contributing factor to the fact that we're not living as long as we did 10 years ago. So um, the, the, the many, many manifestations of heart health are just beyond you know, the simple things of 
uh, lowering your cholesterol and treating your blood pressure, which has been our traditional storylines for many, many years, there are many, many social issues that we also need to be addressing. Uh, I'm sure there'll be other questions about this, but there's also implementation strategies for the therapeutics that we have that will be extremely important, and I think an opportunity for clinical research sites. Yeah, we absolutely will get into some of the specific clinical research aspects for our primary audience here. Um, so it, it is interesting um, the, to hear. You, I'm sure a lot of people are echoing some of those same sentiments, not only our investigators that listen, but also those that go and see their uh, medical professionals for their regular care. It's definitely something that I just heard my doctor tell me to get more uh, get more omegas uh, through things like fish and flax, but also uh, increase your physical activity. So <laughs> <laughs> Not an uncommon theme that we're hearing a lot for uh, for care for our hearts as well as the rest of our body. So thank you for those uh, valuable insights, truly valuable. Uh, I want to stay on this theme a little bit around uh, cardiovascular disease. Have you seen an uptick in hypertension and cardiovascular disease among younger adults? You know, typically we associate these kinds of things with you know the forty or even fifty plus audience, um, but uh, for those that are that are younger than that, someone in their thirties or maybe early forties, are you seeing an again, an increase in those, um, those, those, uh, those indications. Yes, I would say for sure. And I think it's tightly related to the obesity epidemic. We know that Americans have never been fatter than they are now. And we know that people who are overweight tend to have more cholesterol problems and more blood pressure problems. So again, this gets back to the diet and exercise theme, but also to the fact that our lifestyles have been markedly altered by changes related to COVID. You have um, you know, maybe more and more people who spend their entire lives in front of their computer screens, and that's not always conducive to heart healthiness. And there are many other factors that have changed in society that lead to less activity, perhaps more comfort eating, uh, greater weight, and ultimately greater numbers of people who are suffering from cardiovascular risk factors, including people suffering from those risk factors at a younger age. What is interesting and, and concerning <laughs> for me being a person that fits into that demographic. Um, so definitely something for our younger audience to, uh, to to pay attention to and to listen to. I think it's important that we focus on our health. Um, really, there is no age young enough to uh, get the information that you need from your clinical care team to maintain, uh, particularly no. in this instance, heart health. And, and just think about lifestyle. So when I was a kid, you know, like most uh, teenage boys, I love sports and I'd go out and play wiffle ball or play street hockey or play, you know, football on the streets of Staten Island. Sure. And nowadays, what, what are the kids, my, you know, the teenage boys do? They play video games. That's right. Yeah. And it so, is an interesting cultural shift. Yeah. And so um, that obviously is you know, more likely to lead to uh, poor, uh, poor eating and physical activity habits. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Dr. Korn, share with us a little bit how things have changed in your practice since it was opened in the late 90s. And in your experience, then, what do sites need to be effective in clinical trials now as a result of some of those changes? You know, talk talk, talk about that theme of change, really, and, and where we're sure. at now. Well, you know, I first started clinical research during my cardiology fellowship, which was very early 1990s. And I came down here to Florida and started uh, research at a, at a practice, a cardiology practice in 1992, 
and then launched our current company in 97. And the, the differences between 1992 and now are just, you know, incredibly different. It's just a whole different world. So it was definitely more of a mom and pop industry back in 1992. If a doctor had a, an idea to get involved in clinical research, there would be the the opportunity to pick uh, a discussion up with your local drug rep, get it in, in hooked up into the clinical trial world. Uh, often your spouse was the coordinator and it was pretty informal. And, um, sure. and, and that was, you know, a reasonable way to start, but of course, this whole industry has become completely professionalized. And everything not only requires dedicated people, but there is actually subspecialists in all areas of clinical research. So any any uh, clinical research site that wants to make a, a long-term go at it as a viable business entity needs to get specialists. And you know, nowadays, most sites, it's more than just coordinators. We have regulatory specialists and recruiting specialists and people who are responsible for the labs and, and pharmacists. And even pharmacists can break down to blinded and unblinded pharmacists. And of course, um, you know, investigators have to keep up as well and, and make sure that their skills are in place in terms of understanding the latest twists and turns of GCP and also how to keep people on track. And, and maybe that's the most important thing that we do. As studies get more and more complicated, good investigators are able to get their people to focus on the important issues. You know, and a simple example of that is we often have situations where our coordinators and the CRAs from, from industry will be interacting and, and they'll get very, very involved in a lot of minutia, but sometimes forget the primary endpoint of a study. And I'll have to gently remind them about that. So the to, to answer your question, the complexity of research has increased dramatically. And because of that, the level of professionalization and the requirements of a clinical research site has also increased dramatically with far greater specialization of roles than we ever saw before. And, and the need for, for investigators to serve that role of being holistic, that they need to understand all the different elements of how clinical research runs and make sure that we don't, you know, the old saying, we, we don't lose the forest from the trees. So um, for that reason, I think that um, it's never been more important for good investigators to dedicate a good portion of their time to, to their craft and make sure they're continuously learning and also listening to podcasts like this and others where they're they're getting, they're understanding the best practices of the best sites in order to improve the efforts at their site. A lot of great points there, Dr. Corrin. I, I was reflecting back to even the start of my career, which was, um, you know, just just about ten to twelve years ago, and the changes that I've seen in clinical research from the from the research site side of things. And, and I, I like the the insights you give around the professionalization, right? Because that really is in a lot of ways, I would say generally a, a more positive thing, right? It's better that it's gone this route. I think that most would oh, no argue doubt. and, and sub subscribe to that, but it also has its own sets of, of challenges and I guess maybe cons, if we could look at them that way, that exist in that. And that's that growing complexity. But um, I think the legitima legitimization of clinical research um, as truly a, a strong and foundational profession, one that is critical to the existence of the practice of medicine um, is has really been something that's grown and I think um, culminated truly 
and coming to the public eye, it will continue to, I think, culminate, but really culminated in the, the COVID-19 pandemic. And we're starting to see a lot more attention into research and, and understanding of what this profession does uh, for, the again, the medical community. Yeah. yeah. Amen to everything you just said. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Uh, staying on this theme, Dr. Corin, around the industry, uh, what are you seeing in our industry as far as advancements in cardiovascular related treatments? What's the latest and greatest that you're seeing from, from the research that's being done? You did mention, of course, briefly this, this cross therapeutic area applicability of treatments and molecules that are being developed, but maybe dig into that or share some other insights around uh, what you're sure. seeing. Yeah, the scientific advancements are just staggering. So we're, we're actually manipulating genes now. We've never been able to do that until you know, the last few years. So we, we highlighted this achievement with the messenger RNA vaccines, of course, but this has been going on now in the cardiovascular space for you know, at least the last five to 10 years. And the fact is that we are looking at an age where we're using RNA therapeutics on a regular basis. And we have a, approved products that we've been now working with in clinical research for you know, close to a decade that show that we can suppress genes, which is just staggering, uh, something that was unthinkable when I started. So, sure. so literally... Uh, you know, the, the most, um, probably the most um, advanced uh, example of that is with the PCSK9 inhibitors. So PCSK9, to remind everybody, is a protein that circulates in our bodies, and it's a protein that has a deleterious effect on LDL cholesterol control. So if we can neutralize PCSK9, we can actually lower LDL cholesterol. And there are now three approved products that actually will change gene expression. Of, of this. And uh, the one that's most interesting in some ways is a drug called inclycerin, which uses a phenomenon called RNA interference to suppress gene regulation in hepatocytes. So just think about that, is that we understand enough about genetics where we can tell the body to stop making this protein based on our ability to regulate that protein through genetic mechanisms. And it's, it's really staggering that when you think about that. Um, having said that, you know, there are substantial issues in distributing these products in terms of the cost of them. They're very sophisticated drugs that are more costly. And we still have a lot of issues in terms of how to fairly distribute these expensive treatments to the most deserving patients. And I've been a big advocate of getting companies to do more and more implementation studies where I say, okay, well, we know the product works. But how do you get the best bang for the buck and actually study that in clinical research? So that's an example of a technology that is just mind blowing in terms of of how we're able to to help people. And on the other hand, to have this barrier that requires further research to overcome the difficulties that we're having making this work for as many patients as possible. I'm sure that could be an entirely separate conversation that we could go for hours on the uh, availability pricing, you know, the the access issue that we see around uh, around new treatments and exciting treatments. But nonetheless, it is really exciting to hear about some of the advancements that are being done. And what's cool about that genetic, if we could bucket that term and, and use it generally, genetic medicine um, and and, and 
kind of customized specific care for very, uh, you know, very specific conditions that we're seeing in some of our patients. It's really, really exciting and really interesting because it spans all nearly all therapeutic areas, if not all. Right. I, of course, haven't dug, dug into all of them, but we're seeing that type of advancement being applied across the board. Like you mentioned, the COVID-19 vaccine is, a, is an excellent example of, of some really cool advancements as well as some of the, the molecules that you had mentioned. So thank you for sharing those insights. It really, really is exciting for our yep. industry to see what's next, and w which is one of the things that keeps us in research really yep. is, is seeing that what's next and what's next. And there's always something new. Right. So the other the other thing that's interesting, and, and this is, I think, very apropos to an SRS platform, is the fact that we're learning a lot about drugs just because we've been required to do certain studies. So I mentioned uh, in the beginning that we have a class of drugs that was developed as a diabetes class of drugs that's now considered a cornerstone of cardiovascular treatment, particularly for patients with congestive heart failure. And those are called uh, SGLT2 inhibitors. And SGLT2, uh, SGLT2 inhibitors basically help the kidneys get rid of glucose. So they, they exchange sodium and glucose. And um, the FDA required that we do some studies just to show the cardiovascular safety of this class in diabetic patients. And the reason that the FDA uh, required that is because there were certain diabetic drugs that were doing great with glycemic issues, lowering blood sugar, but maybe having some off-target effects that were difficult to discern in small studies that required larger studies to to see whether or not there was any issues with regard to heart health. Well, lo and behold, when they recorded these studies for SGLT2 inhibitors, we found not only were these drugs safe for diabetic patients, but there was a tendency to actually see better cardiovascular outcomes in people who are taking the drug as compared to placebo. So once that came out, there was another set of studies that was done, okay, well, if it's safe and actually maybe beneficial from a cardiovascular outcome standpoint in diabetes patients, is it good for just heart patients that don't have diabetes? And then we started doing studies with these, quote, diabetes drugs in heart failure patients without diabetes. And lo and behold, it became probably the most successful class of drugs we've had specifically for congestive heart failure. And no one would have anticipated that at first. And, and this is really a huge triumph for the clinical trials industry because it shows that there's a learning that occurs that's even beyond our initial objectives. And that learning beyond the initial objectives can have a huge impact on our communities. So uh, it's now considered a standard to use the SGLT2 class in all patients that have congestive heart failure. And interestingly, it's the one drug class that's actually proven to help people that have congestive heart failure, even if their ejection fractions are normal or above normal. So we never had a solution for that group of patients, and now we do. So again, thank you for all the researchers that have been part of that. And that should lead to, I think, uh, a general sense that, of optimism about our industry and something uh, that patients should know more and more about is that the learning that occurs in clinical research is really profound. But most importantly is that historically we've been always worried about maybe the burden, the side effects from people who participate in clinical research. And what I like to remind people is that the likelihood in the current era is that those side effects will be positive. The things that we don't know about a drug can actually lead to benefits rather than just side effects that are that are perceived as negative. Yeah, it, it's a really, really interesting point. Uh, and and I, I am excited that you mentioned the SGLT2s. Um, 
it is truly, uh, truly remarkable and interesting. Well, Dr. Corin, as we begin to wrap our conversation up here today, it's it's been really, um, really great, really insightful and, and a lot of fun to chat with you. So thank you for your time. But what would you like our listeners to know for American Heart Month? How can they get involved ensuring that their loved ones stay heart healthy or, or and, and maybe even talk a little bit about what are some of the signs of heart disease that we should be uh, aware of, conscious of? Well, in terms of the signs, I think people have an awareness of that, but just to remind them that people that develop chest pain with exertion, people that develop shortness of breath that seems out of the ordinary, uh, people who just feel very, very poorly when they're exerting themselves or when they are interacting in a stressful environment, for example, feeling sweaty and nauseous and other things, these can all be signs of, of heart issues. Of course, uh, heart issues can progress asymptomatically. So checking with your physician is important, getting a screening EKG, in some cases a screening stress test. If you're particularly high risk, we have fabulous screening procedures such as uh, CT scans that look at coronary calcium or look at your coronary arteries. The, these technologies are now very, very readily available and not, not terribly expensive. So there's a lot of ways of discovering whether or not you're at risk for heart disease. And I encourage everybody to meet with a medical professional to help them decide whether or not they have high risk. And if they have high risk, then uh, address the risk factors that we all know about, which are not smoking, uh, reducing your cholesterol through both dietary and possibly pharmaceutical means, uh, lowering your blood pressure through a number of different means, uh, dealing with sugar issues, get down to ideal weight. And uh, actually sleeping well is also an important factor we haven't mentioned, but that is also being discovered as something that's really important. And of course, eating fish, as I started uh, to talk about from, from the get-go. So those are just some uh, general piece of advice. And then the other thing in conclusion is we all need to talk about clinical research because, again, this concept that, that the likelihood of a patient in clinical research to get some unknown benefit is extremely high. And so, uh, you know, historically, we've always talked about the risk burden of participating in clinical research. And I think we should be talking more about sharing the benefits of patients participating in the clinical research because they are numerous. And certainly, SRS is a, is a wonderful organization to help promote that message, which is a message that should be resounding amongst all of us who have been touched by this industry. Dr. Corn, that's a great place to end things and a really positive message. So I uh, want to thank you for for that. And, and thank you for your time today and your insights. It's always uh, rewarding and, and valuable to hear from someone with your level of expertise talk about these issues, talk about our cardiovascular health and what's being done in the form of clinical research for our cardiovascular health. So thank you for being here with us today. It really was a privilege to have you on the phone for this short amount of time, um, but we look forward to engaging with you um, and, and, and speaking with you again soon. My pleasure, my pleasure, absolutely my pleasure. So, so be careful and eat, eat your fish. <laughs> For everyone on the line, make sure that you register for upcoming summits being held throughout the year by visiting the summit page on our website. Our oncology and diversity related summits will take place March 30th through April 1st down in Austin, Texas. While you're on our website, be sure to check out our other SCRS publications for the community in the publication section of that website again, myscrs.org. We appreciate everyone's participation in today's program and look forward to having you join us for more great content coming out soon. Thanks for listening.